For our last scripture reading, I would ask that you would stand with me if you are able as we read again from Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 29. Exodus 10, beginning at verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. And Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear to me before, before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. If you would join with me in a time of prayer, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we have gathered here in this place, even as we have heard um, the word spoken from R3, we are reminded that we are to be a light in the midst of darkness. We are reminded that we are to be your hands and your feet. We are reminded that we do not set conditions before you, but that we respond to you. When you call, we respond. We do not harden our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that would be so that our hearts would be soft, that they would be receptive today, that we would be here to hear from you, not to just have our ears tickled, but that we would respond. Indeed, we respond to you, Lord God, the great I am. And I pray, Lord, that for those who are not here with us, for those who are away for whatever reason, whether travel, whether illness, whatever the cause may be, that, Lord, you would protect them, that you would look over them, and that in your perfect will and goodness, you would bring them back to us as they are able to come. Grant now, I pray, Lord God, that you would be exalted in this place as we hear the word that you would have us to hear. That which is from me, may it fall on deaf ears. That which is from you, may it be heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today is Palm Sunday, and you say, but Timothy, you read from Exodus. I get it. Um, bear with me for a moment. Palm Sunday does mark the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. That's why we have the palm branches here at the, at the altar. Um, it's immediately before Passover. 
And after that triumphal entry, Jesus makes his way into the temple. The 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark presents the sequential chronology for us. On Monday, Jesus will curse the fig tree on his way to the temple. At the temple, Christ will overturn the money tables of individuals who had made his house of prayer into a den of thieves. And following this event, the disciples will find on Tuesday that the fig tree has completely withered from its roots. Unlike Mark chapter 11, Matthew chapter 21 sequences the events not chronologically, but thematically. He wants his readers to understand exactly why Jesus had cursed the fig tree. After all, such an action might readily raise questions in some people's minds. Here was the very Christ who had, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 10, healed a man's withered hand, now causing a tree to wither. Here was the very Christ who had come to usher in a new creation, placing a curse on something amid his creation. What gives? Just as Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9, when he entered into Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey, Jesus fulfills the promise of Zechariah 14, verse 21, by ridding the temple of those making merchandise out of religion. The book of Zechariah concludes, on that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. And the Geneva Study Bible rightly notes that Canaanite here means any unclean person, whether heathen who had not accepted the religion and consecrated himself to the service of Jehovah, or Jews who in heart and life were no better than heathen. In light of this, the cursing of the fig tree makes sense. As in the parable of Luke 13, 6-9, the fig tree stands for the nation of Israel's spiritual barrenness. It stands for its refusal to repent of manifold sin and its outright rejection of Christ, the great I Am. Authentic faith has nothing to do with religiosity, but it has everything to do with a right relationship with God. Authentic faith has nothing to do with outward entitlement, but it has everything to do with inward reality. Apart from authentic faith, we will never experience God's favor, but only encounter God's judgment. And that is precisely what we have seen taking shape through the plagues upon Egypt. It is precisely the message that continues with plagues 7 through 9. Pharaoh had all kinds of religiosity. It's seen in the manifold gods that were exalted in Egypt. By sending the hailstorm and the locusts, Perhaps God was showing the fallacy behind the Egyptian gods and goddesses over nature. 
Shu was the god of the atmosphere. He held up the heavens. Nut was the sky goddess. Anubis was the guardian of the fields, and Sanaam was the divine protector against pests. And then, in sending darkness over the land, God was most certainly attacking their sun god, Ra. Remember how the sun for the Egyptians represented the afterlife. They worshipped the eternally rising sun. So when the sun was blotted out, they were left with pronounced dread. Numerous biblical scholars conclude that the first nine plagues show the Lord's reversal over the created order. Something of a decreation, if you will. The very God who made the waters had turned them into blood. The very God who had made creatures to swim in the sea had brought death to fish and frogs. The very God who made men and beasts had sent pestilence and even death upon them. The very God who created vegetation had destroyed it with hail and locusts. The very God who had called forth light had now brought forth perpetual darkness. And now consider again why Jesus had cursed the fig tree on the heels of Palm Sunday. It was to reveal Israel's spiritual barrenness and its need for repentance. And remember, too, why God had brought a reversal of his created order through the plagues. It was to reveal to the Egyptians their spiritual barrenness and their need for repentance. Friends, we best not set this aside as just some history lesson in the biblical record. For the plagues on Egypt, as well as the indictment on Israel through the cursing of the fig tree, still has relevance to our lives. Spiritual barrenness means having a sense of religion without signs of Christ-like fruitfulness in our lives. We can be spiritually barren because of our propensity to exalt things as idols in our lives above the person of God. Think of hobbies like hunting or golf. Think of our careers where it's more about how much we make than about what we do and why we do it. Think about our families, our, even our religious traditions. Plus, we can grow spiritually barren because of our apathy. Peter Enns states, it's the goal of redemption itself not to feel self-important by being a part of God's club, but to turn ourselves away from our sinful inclination toward self-centeredness and to turn back toward God. That is how Israel would have applied the plagues to their lives. 
They would see what God had done for them. They would remember and they would respond. In other words, the Israelites came to know God better by what Yahweh had done. And it is that knowledge that should form the basis for their morality. Shouldn't knowing what Christ has done for us form the basis for our morality? An anonymous poem, which is based on the least of these that Jesus references in Matthew chapter 25, reads in part, I was hungry, and you formed a humanities club to discuss my hunger. I was imprisoned, and you judged the merits of my sentencing. I was naked, and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick. And you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me of the shelter of the love of God. Maybe this coming Easter week, during the same week that we read about Jesus overturning money tables among the spiritually barren, and also during the same week where he healed the blind and the lame in that same temple. Maybe it should challenge you and me to see as Jesus sees. Maybe it should challenge us to love like Jesus loves. When our hearts and minds are permeated with a deeper personal knowledge of Jesus, proper morality will follow. Our actions flow from who we are at our very core. And who we are is determined by whom we worship, whether Christ, this world, or ourselves. Beyond spiritual barrenness, Pharaoh felt entitled. He exalted himself. Just keep in mind how he thought of himself as a God who could determine the way things should take shape. Keep in mind how Pharaoh had gained familiarity with Yahweh, but he never submitted his heart to him. And chapter 9, verse 14, literally reads, I will send the full force of my plagues against your heart. God gives the Egyptians advanced warning to seek shelter before the hailstorm. We might compare it to the tornado siren that went off in certain areas last night. When a tornado siren sounds, you know, get to the basement if you have one. If you don't have a basement, get into a closet away from windows. But the point is, is that you need to respond. And there were two ways to respond that we see in this text. Two options in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. You either listen or you do not listen. You either heed God's word or you ignore it. 
Salvation always comes through a proper response to God. One response shows that some Egyptians were being made believers. These are the ones who took God's word seriously. These are the ones who sought shelter. We sang Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Legend has it that Augustus Toplady wrote that hymn during a storm that suddenly erupted while he was traveling along a gorge in Burrington Combe, England. Caught in that tempest, Top Lady had to take shelter within a gap in that gorge. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And Jesus, he confesses, thou must save, thou alone. In other words, take shelter in the gospel. It's as easy as ABC. A, acknowledge you are a sinner. B, believe in Jesus Christ's atoning death and resurrection. And C, confess that he alone is Savior and Lord of your life. Chapter 9 and verse 21 literally reads, but those who did not set their hearts on God's word. Failure to take shelter in the free offer of God's provision leads to judgment. It leads to death. Hell pelted those who did not heed God's word, and it will one day do the same for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. The seventh bowl of wrath in Revelation 16, verse 21, refers to huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, falling upon those who choose to reject Christ and who choose to remain in their sin. God gives to us advanced warning. He gives us the warning and he tells us to repent. Pharaoh would not turn away from his sin. Several times in the series of plagues, we learn that he was sorry for the consequences of his sins, but he was never truly willing to repent of them. You see that afresh in Exodus 9, 27 to 35. And you see it also in Exodus 10, 16 to 17. Repentance means that we turn from the wrong direction in which we are walking and we go in the right one. So Victor Hamilton suggests that guilt says, I'm sorry I did it. Sorrow says, I'm sorry I did it to him. Guilt is feeling sorry for one's sins because they're destroying one's life. Sorrow is feeling sorry for one's sins because they grieve and break the heart of God. In Exodus 10, verse 3, the Lord asks, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? We might just as easily ask, how long will you choose to remain in your sinful lifestyle? 
We might just as easily ask, how long will you seek to remain as God over your own life? By insisting on his right to hold on to the women and children in chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. And then his insistence to hold on to God's livestock in chapter 10, verse 24. Pharaoh was essentially saying that God could not have lordship over him. He always wanted to deal with God in some way on his own terms. And we best not just set this aside as some history lesson in the biblical record that holds no relevance to us. How easily do we attempt to do the same thing? How often do we want to set before God our own terms? I will repeat a salvation prayer with the pastor as long as no one actually expects me to attend worship services consistently. I will get baptized as long as I don't actually have to clean up my lifestyle. I will commit to having a quiet time as long as it means God will grant me security and stability. Only God does not allow us to set the conditions. We must not let the significance of the ninth plague and the darkness that covered the land of Egypt for three days escape our attention. In order to bring us into the light, the Son of God had to enter into our darkness. Luke 23:44 tells us that while Christ hung on the cross of Calvary, darkness covered the land. And then Jesus fell under the curse that God reserved for those who hated him. Jesus went into the grave where he remained in the deepest of darkness for three days. But on the third day, he was raised again in a body dazzling with the light of God's glory. This is a fitting prelude to what we observe together on Good Friday, and most importantly, what we will celebrate together on Easter morning. Jesus Christ overcame the grave. That's the gospel. It's the only means of our salvation. We cannot set any other conditions for it. Coming to Christ by faith is stepping out of the darkness of sin and into the light of salvation. Jesus promises in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 
And the Apostle John explains in 1 John 2.8, Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing. And the true light is already shining. Responding to God through the gospel means living our lives in light of that gospel. Notice in chapter 10, verse 23, that there is still light in Goshen. And that's the way it always should be. Light should always stream out into the darkness from the homes of God's people. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 to 16, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In Exodus 10, verse 2, God makes it clear that we are to tell our children and our grandchildren and others the story of God's mighty acts of salvation. That we have come out of darkness and into the light. No greater task exists than sharing the gospel story with others. And this is especially true in our homes. That as a dad, I would be sharing God's word with my children. That as a dad, I would be praying God's promises over my children. That as a dad, I would bear witness to the light of God's glory to my children. That we would do that with our children and our grandchildren. And that they would be raised up to share the gospel with those that they come in contact with too. called out of darkness into the wonderful light. It is so paramount that we would respond to God. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons from Exodus, recounts a conversation between a minister and a young woman named Hannah. Although she had heard the gospel many, many times, she had yet to commit her life to Jesus Christ. Hannah, the minister asked, do you intend to come to Christ one day? Yes, she replied. Well, now, he said, will you give me a date as to when you will come to Christ? You are 20 years old now. Will you come to him when you are 30? The young lady answered, well, sir, I might be dead before I'm 30. Ten years is a long time. I hope that I shall know the Lord before then. The pastor said, suppose you agree then to serve the Lord in 12 months' time. 
Will you take just this year in the service of Satan and then, having enjoyed yourself in all the ways of the world, give yourself and your heart to Jesus? Somehow Spurgeon explains the young woman felt in that moment that this too would prove too long and very dangerous. She could not bear the thought of being lost, and at last she exclaimed, Oh, sir, it had better be tonight. It had better be tonight. Let me now give my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is a dreadful thing to be without a Savior. It is indeed a dreadful thing to be without a Savior. Just ask the Pharaoh. Do not put off for tomorrow what God is calling you to do today. Whatever it is, God just says, only trust and obey. That's the call today as our musicians come forward. The call today is that you would hear the light and the truth of the gospel and you would respond to it. In whatever way you need to respond, whether it is giving your life to Jesus Christ for the first time or whether it is to follow him in some way, he calls us by his spirit that we would trust and that we would obey. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn 465.